always enjoy the children's stories. All right, if you could throw up the sermon slides for me there, that would be great. And if everyone else, uh, if you bring your Bibles today, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. And we are going to be looking at verses 23 all the way to 32 today. Uh, I'll just put this down there so I can see. Uh, for our passage this morning, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue Bible in the, church, or in the seats in front of you. You can take that home as your own if you would like that. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I just want to catch you up. We've been, if you're new here, we've been going through a series uh, called Ephesians. We've been studying the book for the better part of the year. And right now we're just taking a little bit of a break from it in order to learn and uh, get ourselves ready for Easter. Because we believe, like as a church, that Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the most pivotal event in all of human history. In fact, all of creation, I would say. Do I hear an amen for that? Amen. amen. All right. So to get ready for Easter, we're just uh, doing a quick little mini-series called The Last Week, where we look at the last week of Jesus' life. And we're randomly looking at five stories that occur the last week of Jesus' life. And so today, we are looking at the story of the Pharisees challenging Jesus, which is found in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23 to 32. But before I actually get into the story, I want to do two things for you. The first is, is uh, do you remember me telling you about this last week, about the headings? So when you look at this story... In chapter 21, starting at verse 23, there are three headings. So there's Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees. There's the parable of the, the two sons. And then there's the parable of the tenant. And sometimes what happens is, is like when you read the headings, you break them up in your mind as three separate events. And uh, just, just so we're all clear about what is happening here in the text, uh, from verse 23 all the way to the end of the chapter is one event. Okay. So he's confronting the Pharisees and he's telling two parables in that same story. And I just want to let you know that uh, we're only going to talk about, uh, we'll only go up to the first parable today. But just so you know, that's sort of what's going on. That's a little bit of context. The other thing I want to do is just review because uh, I, I know that there are some of us who have grown up in church. We've been in church for a long time. And then there are all those of us who are exploring Christianity for the first time. And you're kind of jumping in at the end of the story. So just so you're not lost, let me explain a little bit about what is going on. We're talking about the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross, which starts on a Sunday. And typically, we call this Palm Sunday. We celebrate this as a church the week before Easter. And uh, if you've ever been in church before the week before Easter, you know, the kids come up and they do a little uh, program and a little recital thing, and they have the palm branches, and all the grandparents are of the church, and they take nice pictures. Isn't that so cute? That's Palm Sunday, right? But it commemorates the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the very first time on a donkey uh, with a lot of fanfare. People are thinking he's the Messiah. People thinking, yay, Jesus, all that kind of thing. That's Palm Sunday. And then last week, we talked about what happened on Monday, which was the day after Jesus walks into the temple and he overturns the temple and he just kind of clears it out. And we talked about the idea that the reason that Jesus did that was because he was actually shutting down the temple. He's saying, I'm the superior temple. I'm the one that, you know, you can, I'm the one that you, that I'm the better option. I can find, you find forgiveness and sins 
through me on a better way, and I'm the better way to experience God's presence here on earth. So we talked about that. What I didn't mention is that on that same day, Jesus curses the fig tree. That happens on that day, okay? On his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, right? So if you know that story, he kind of goes to the tree, he's hungry, he sees that there's no fruit, and he rebukes the tree. Now it's Tuesday, okay? And Tuesday is typically what I would say is Jesus' primary teaching day. And if you look in your Bibles, from Matthew 21 all the way to chapter 25, all that kind of parables and all those teachings and the Olivet Discourse and the preaching about Jesus on the end times, that occurs all roughly on that day. So from morning to evening, Jesus is going hardcore preaching. He's, he's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching. And what you need to understand about that in particular is most of his, most of his teaching is a rebuke against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So from chapter 21 all the way to 23, it's parable after parable and condemnation after condemnation after the religious leaders. He's kind of saying the same thing over and over and over again at them. Well, before Jesus kind of enters into the temple and preaches on Tuesday, he's challenged by the Pharisees. Okay? So Jesus goes to the temple and he walks in and he, he gets ready to start teaching. And you kind of, here's, here's what you need to understand a little bit. You kind of get the sense that the Pharisees have lost their footing a little bit. Meaning that they, Jesus comes into uh, a whole city full of fanfare. And uh, people are just praising Jesus. And kids are praising Jesus. And the Pharisees are looking at the kids praising Jesus and saying, Jesus, why don't you stop this? And Jesus is encouraging it. People are getting healed. Jesus goes into the temple, starts kicking out everybody and flipping tables and all this kind of thing. And you kind of get the sense in Jerusalem that what is going on is that Jesus is, so to speak, sucking all the air out of the room. Like whatever is going on in Jerusalem that week, is overshadowed by what Jesus is going to do next. Like, what is he going to do next? He overturned tables, he did this. What is going on? And so you kind of get the, the idea that for the first couple days, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are caught a little bit off guard. So what you see here is they're trying to gain their footing back. And they're trying to go to Jesus, and they're trying to put him on the defensive, and they're trying to... They're trying to like get back and kind of discredit him again. And so he starts in, and uh, what, in, what happens is they go in, Jesus starts teaching. But before he get any traction in his teaching, they come up to him in verse 23, and they say this, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority? I mean, you kind of you got to read it with a little bit of anger, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing like this? And what do, what do they mean by these things? Well, these things that they're referring to is everything that happened on Sunday and Monday. And the, that authority question, like what authority they're asking about, is, is the idea that they realize that Jesus himself does not come from the same... What's, what's the right word here? He's not educated and he's not a rabbi in the same sense that they are. Okay, So they go to school, they, go, they get a formal education... They go through all the religious training, and all of a sudden, this guy comes in from Galilee, which is like has has doesn't have that great reputation for being a place of religious significance. 
And they kind of go, what authority, who are you, why are you doing this, and what is going on? And what's, what you start realizing is that the Pharisees do the exact same thing that we do when we get convicted. Have you ever realized that? Okay. So you got to remember that the day before Jesus is teaching, and he's, he's speaking against the corruption of the temple and all that sort of thing, and instead of actually being convicted, hey, Jesus, you know what? You're right. We have let this, uh, we have let this get corrupted. We do need something better. You are the Messiah. Instead of having that soft, repentant heart, they get angry and they challenge the messenger, which in this case is Jesus, about how God uses them in this life. Have you ever done that? I'm just kind of curious. You probably have. I know that I have. I know that there have been times in my life where God has used a loved one, maybe my wife or my dad or my mom or a friend, to speak truth over me, and I, I do feel convicted. You know that feeling of conviction you have when you go, oh, yeah, you're right. But instead of actually repenting, we actually get angry at them, and we actually do the same thing the Pharisees do. What right do you have to speak these issues in my life? Right? So that's sort of what the Pharisees are doing, right? That's what they're going on, right? They're kind of balking or pushing back against God's conviction in their lives, which is an ongoing thing throughout the week that I want to point out, okay? So what does Jesus do? He, Jesus, he's so awesome. He answers a question with another question, right? This is what he says. So Jesus, not wanting to back down from a fight or not wanting to back down from a challenge, kind of says this. I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Okay. And I want you to just, just quickly note this, as I, I was just reading it on my own. There's an if-then statement in here, okay? Do you see the if-then statement? So there's a promise, and then there's that promise is based on a condition. What's the promise that Jesus makes here? Shout it out. He'll answer the question. What's the condition? Yeah, he says, if you, an if you answer the question that I give, I'll tell you the answer that you're looking for. That's important to go on. So... He says, the baptism of John, where does it come from? From heaven or from man? Okay. And then he goes on, and then this is what happens. <clears throat> they pull away, and they discuss it among themselves, saying, if we say it's from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? So you kind of, I want you to catch that, because they're afraid of being embarrassed, as I would say. Okay. Embarrassed that they got it wrong. And then here's what they go do in 26. They say, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was the prophet. Now, here's what I want to say about this uh, going on. Jesus' question is nothing short of brilliant, okay? Because John the Baptist was seen among the crowds as someone who was dearly loved, right? Someone that they thought that was from God. And when John was martyred, it solidified 
uh, John's place um, status among the people. So either way that they answered this, they, they were in trouble, right? And they didn't, know, they didn't know what to do necessarily about it because on a heart level, they didn't really believe that John was from God, okay? So if they answered that he was from God, John, God would, Jesus would challenge that, but on the other side of it, if they said what they truly believed, which was that he wasn't from God, they were afraid of the people, okay? And I think that's really, really important for us to understand because here's what they respond. And they respond a lot of the times the way that you and I respond when there's a question we don't like. And that is these three amazing words, say it with me. We do not know. How many of you, I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but if you're a parent or even if you, were, if you remember back to your childhood, your parents would ask you a question Right? Oh, why did you why did you why did you break grandma's favorite vase? Right? And the answer that they would give would be we do not know. Right. I just think that's that's so hilarious, right? So they're trying to avoid the question just like we would today, right? And Jesus, prepared for it, simply says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now that's half the story. So let me stop and, and, and I'll give you a thought or two and then I'll, I'll continue on in the story a little bit. And uh, I, I want to, I'm going to give you just a couple observations that I made about what just happened here. And what I would like you to do is I'd actually like you to go home and discuss it and see if I'm off kilter or not. But here's, here's my thought on this. I don't really think that Jesus is trying to embarrass the Pharisees. Okay. I don't really think this is an issue where there's a showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees and he's trying to get, ha, like I won the argument and that kind of thing. I think Jesus isn't trying to humiliate them. I think that Jesus was trying to get at the hard issue, which was unbelief. Because if you look at the next two stories, and I'll explain this in a minute, is that they're, they're, they're cored at their unrepentance and unbelief. And it all happens in the same story. So... What I think is so interesting about this is how Jesus went about it. Jesus does two things in this instance. Number one is he asks a question, and, the thing, and then he tells a story. So let's talk about the question for a minute. And when I was reading this, this is the note that I wrote down in my notes, is that when Jesus asks a question, it isn't always rhetorical. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, a rhetorical question is a question you ask to, you know, drive a point but not really expect a real answer in that. In this case, that's not what's happening. When Jesus asks the question, he's waiting for an answer. Okay? And I think that's so crucial to understand because uh, so many times when I read the, the gospel accounts and I go from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't know if you know this or not, but I... I, I researched this. To my best ability, I count 135 times that Jesus himself asked a question. Right? And I can't think that every single time they're rhetorical, meaning that when I read the scripture and Jesus asks a question, I kind of like, here's what I do, is I kind of go after it as if he's making a point, and then I don't really answer the question themselves. It, 
And here's what I want you to catch is that in this story, Jesus says, if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority. So he's saying, give me an answer and I'll tell you what you're longing for. I want you to see what's going on here. And I want you to catch this. He's not asking for the correct answer. He's asking for an answer. Okay? I need you to answer this. And I've always wondered what would happen if the Pharisees just answered the question. And I don't know, it's entirely speculation on my part, but I think that if they were honest enough to answer the question either way, it might have led to repentance. So for example, if they answered uh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, John's, John's mission was from God, and Jesus responds by saying, why then did you not believe them? And they gave an honest answer to that question, it would probably go like we're, we're jealous of John which I actually think would actually lead to a heart of repentance. On the other side of it, if they answered, you know what, Jesus, we truly believe that John's message was not from God, then I think that would have given Jesus something to work with. But in either case, they didn't answer the question. And because they didn't answer the question, God never, or Jesus never really gave them an answer. And I, I just want to, and I want to, I just wrote this in my notes as I was watching, as I was reading the story to myself, is that their unwillingness to answer God's questions resulted, from, resulted in an unwillingness for God to answer theirs. Okay? When Jesus asks a question, it is never for information. Do you realize that? It is never, ever because he's like, oh, I didn't know that, really? Like if you go through the whole Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you circle every time that God asks a question, it is never because he doesn't know. He's on, he doesn't know anything. So what was Jesus after? Jesus was after their getting to the condition of their heart. And so it kind of works like this. Uh, I want you to think about just two illustrations for just to point this out. When James was really young, uh, we would have all these toys at home that represented different, like, that would teach him the alphabet. So, you know, A, B, C, D, D. Uh, we had that hooked on phonics thing. What else do we have? We, have, we had a bunch of that stuff, right? And James would come out and say, Daddy, look at this. And he would point to a letter and point to a letter. And I'm like, oh, cool, James, tell me. And, I, and I, would, I would point to the letter A and it said, hey, James, what's that? And he would say it would be the letter A. Now, here's the question. Here's the thing. Am I asking James because I don't know? No. I'm asking James because I'm trying to get him to realize and understand what it is here. It's the same thing with God. When God asks a question, it is to help you reveal what is going on in your, in your heart in a way that you wouldn't even see had he not asked the question. So, for example... If you look at, uh, there's, a, there's a passage where Jesus talks about why do, you, why, do you, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And you know what I typically do with that when I read it? I say, oh yeah, right, Lord, that makes sense. I, I, I should do what you say, and I actually skip over answering the question. It's a little like getting in trouble with your parents, right? When I was a kid, my dad would ask me, well, why did you do that, and why did you break that rule? And I would always say, I'm sorry, Dad, I'll never again. And we do the same thing with God. God asks a question of us, 
and we go, I'm sorry, God, I'll never do it again, which is a good response, but it, just like me asking my son James, why did you do that? God, we, we never really asked the answer. So the other day, you know, we're trying to get James to like, like her dog, and sometimes he gets frustrated with her dog and hits the dog, right? And we're telling him not to do, to do that, right? And the other day, he hit the dog, and it was like, James, why did you do that? And he did exactly what I said he did. He just like went, I won't do it again. And I'm like, James, that's not why, what I asked. I asked you, why did you do it? And then he was honest and said, I was frustrated that she kept taking my toys. What if you answered God that way? Instead of looking at the questions as rhetorical, why don't you actually answer the question? So just, just a... Just, just a little, you might be asking, well, how does that apply? Like, here's a, here's a way, here, here's just a, a way you could do it. This is, I want you to try it, and I want you to get back to me and tell me if you, what, what the result is. But when you look at the questions Jesus asks, why don't you try this the next time you do your devotionals, right? So you read the Word of God, you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you notice that Jesus asks a question. Well, why don't you stop it with the question that Jesus asks and really answer it? Take out a pen and paper, write down the question, and just answer the question as if Jesus was talking to you. So when Jesus says in Matthew 8, 26, why are you so afraid? Why don't you just stop and answer the question, why are you so afraid? Okay? Or why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry? Not every question that Jesus asks is rhetorical, and you kind of see it in the text, is that Jesus is expecting an answer, and that answer from us reveals the condition of the heart. In this case, it is their unbelief or their hard-heartedness, okay? That started with John and ends with Jesus, okay? So what winds up happening in this story is what Jesus is actually doing is he's not trying to humiliate them. He's trying to get at the core of the heart, which is that they do not believe, which is why he tells two parables, okay? back to back. Okay? And they're both aimed at the Pharisees, and they're both aimed and talk about their unrepentance and their unwillingness to see that Jesus is Lord. So if you're, not, if you're new here, just a quick word on this. A parable is a story that Jesus tells to communicate truth that, he's, that is either hard to accept or hard to understand. Okay? And in this case, it's an easy one to understand, but not necessarily a hard one or an easy one to accept, as we're going to see with what happens. So continuing on in our story, this is what happens, is Jesus asks the question, John, from God or from not? They respond, we don't know. Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you either. And then he pushes a little bit further to get at the heart. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first son and said, go and work in the field. And he answered, I won't. I won't do that. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his fathers? And church, the answer is the first. Okay. And he said to them, truly I say to you, now here's the part that 
the, he's getting back to what they think about John. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, right? So he's saying, listen, everyone you thought was out is now in, and everyone you think is now in is now out. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and what does it say? You did not believe. Okay? Um, You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you you did not change your minds and believe him. So that's what's going on. So he's talking about the idea that, here's what's happening in the story. I'm just going to make sure I get the notes. Just so you know, uh, in the story, if, in case you're not confused, what is going on here is that the Pharisee, the first son represents everyone who's bad. All the sinners, all the people that you know, don't know God, all the people that live a bad lifestyle, all the people who didn't grow up you know, you know, in church and all that kind of thing. And he's saying that's the first son. The second son is everyone who grew up religious. In this case, it's a reference specifically to the religious leaders. Remember, he's going right after the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Not necessarily the people of Israel, but right after the religious leaders of the time. So the second son is that. The father represents God. And, and this is what's happening in the story. What was going on is simply this, is that... What it, God is not, he's calling the leaders to be like the first son. Right? He's calling repentance. Right? So remember that Jesus' first question is to get at their unbelief. He's now exposed that they're unbelief, they have their unbelief, and now he's calling it out. And he's saying, listen, I need you to repent. I need you to come, and I need you to follow like the first son. And here's what I would say in a Dan Renton term is that Jesus or God is not looking for fans. God is not looking for people who proclaim that Jesus is Lord but never really live like it. Okay? What God is after is God is looking for followers. And so in other words, what God is looking for is he's looking over people who even when God speaks to you, even if at first you push back and you resist it because you understand what you would mean with the life, God would rather have you push back and resist a little bit and then come to the place and then actually do what he had told you to do rather than be someone who says, yes, Jesus, I'm all for you, all that amazing stuff, I'm here, I'm going to never do a thing, to never do anything that Jesus says. That's what he's after, Okay. So the question that maybe if you're looking for an application would be simply this. Are you just someone who proclaims Jesus as Lord? Or are you someone who actually lives like it? Which son are you? Are you the person that comes to church and are you the person that actually talks about or you know, says, I love Jesus and you know, he's, he's everything about my life, but you never actually live like it? Or are you a person who resists a bit and pushes back and says, no, I'm not going to do it, but eventually you come to the place of repentance in your life. Okay? That's what he's calling the Pharisees out on. And from here on in, every parable up until the point where he's talking about his return is exactly pushing against back their hypocrisy. Right? So what do you think happened? Do you think the Pharisees repented? Honest answer. What do you guys think? No. no, they didn't. He tells one more story, which I won't get into today because I don't have the time, but at the end of the two stories, 
This is what happened. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, he perceived that he was speaking about them. So do you remember how I said that it was easy to understand? It wasn't necessarily hard for them to, it wasn't easy for them to accept because verse 46 says, although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because he held them to a prophet. You see, what's going on here is that prior to Jesus coming to Jerusalem, there was already a plan in motion to arrest and try Jesus. But if you read the gospel accounts, you'll notice that they did not want to do it during Passover because Passover, uh, they feared a riot. Right? And you have to understand a little bit about the context of what is going on here. Remember that Passover is a celebration about overthrowing how God overthrew the Egyptian empire. So if you're a Roman and you've conquered the people of Israel, and they're celebrating a day where the entire holiday is about overthrowing a, a, a suppressive superpower, you're kind of a little worried, aren't you? <laughs> and who do you think got stuck in the middle of trying to keep the peace between the Romans and the people? The Pharisees. But you see what Jesus is doing here is he's actually forcing their hand He's actually forcing them to move up their quote-unquote plans to crucify him during the, during the Passover week. So that's the story of Jesus being challenged. So if you would take anything away from that, I would just probably say that I want you to be a people that don't proclaim Lord Jesus as Lord and, and do nothing about it, that you actually live like him. And that when Jesus asks a question of you, don't be afraid to answer. This is all leading up to what happens on Wednesday and then Thursday. And it just gets more and more intense from here. Let's pray. Father, as we come together and we think about the events that led up to the cross, we are so thankful for the cross. But at the same time, we're, we don't... We're... We're ashamed that you even needed to get there in the first place. Because of our mistakes and our failures. But we're so glad that you did. And so God, as we enter into the Easter season, I pray that we would have a renewed sense of gratefulness for the cross and what it means for our lives. And the whole church said, Amen. Well, we have the privilege of knowing the whole story, but can you imagine being someone who thought Jesus was